This is Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers, brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now here is your host, Matt Fitzgerald. Welcome back to Preachers on Preaching. I have to confess that when I'm on vacation in the summertime, I'm not the world's most faithful churchgoer. I did go this summer, though, when my family and I were taking some time off, and I walked into this little country church nearby where we were staying. We actually rode our bikes down a hill and walked right in, and they did not have particularly high hopes. I sat down, I looked at the bulletin, and I saw that the preacher for the day was Neil Plantiga. And I wasn't sure if that was uh, Cornelius, whose books I've read and loved, or if it was somebody else, perhaps related, perhaps not related. Lo and behold, it was indeed the man, Cornelius Plantiga Jr., and he stood up and preached for about 30 minutes and preached a sermon on the Gospel of Matthew, the passage where Jesus says, if you've got plenty, you're going to get even more. If you've got nothing, even that will be taken away from you, which is a tough passage, as you probably know. And he proceeded to preach one of the single best sermons I've ever heard in my life. I really did indeed feel the presence of God crackling in the room as he shared this terrific sermon. So in the handshake line, I said, hey, uh, I'm another minister and I have this podcast. I'd love to talk to you. So here's the fruit of that happy intersection. We talk about a lot of fun things, including a little short piece that he wrote on miracles years ago. And we also spend some time discussing some of the claims of his book, Reading for Preaching. I hope you enjoy this interview. I know I had a great time conducting it. Here he is. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about Calvin College in general and about the, the church out of which it came. It began as a seminary, is that right? It, it did. And then has continued. I mean, the seminary that you're a part of has always been there? The seminary's always been there. Um, the part of, um, of it that became Calvin College was first a junior college in the uh, teens of the last century, and then in the 20s uh, became a four-year college. My dad graduated from it in 1931. Um, It's always been uh, intellectually vigorous, and it has graduated some extremely interesting people, uh, including the author Peter DeVries, for example, and the film director Paul Schrader and director Paul Schrader. Oh, wow. So... um, Martin Marty once said that you can judge a Christian college by the quality of its dissenters. And we've had some really good dissenters. In the church that, that Calvin grew out of, Calvin College grew out of, is the Christian Reformed Church. Is that right? That's correct. The, um, again, from, from an outsider's perspective, I find it to be, I mean, the grass is always greener, of course, but it looks like an, such an intriguing combination of aspects of Christianity that I believe our culture sort of thinks are impossible to hold together. The intellectual rigor that you are talking about, that that you and he and others exhibit. Um, And again, uh, an orthodoxy, a piety. Um, That's a small anecdote. My daughter, who's 11 years old, went to Calvin College basketball camp this summer and loved it. And we really chose it for geography as much as anything. It was halfway to her grandmother's. Um, But she had an amazing experience. I mean, she really just we can take this out later, but the folks who are running that camp did an excellent job. She really loved it. 
Um, but she told me that when I picked her up, she told me that she uh, sat down apprehensively at dinner with the other girls the first night, and they're all chatting. And she said, um, oh, my God, about something. And she said all the girls, uh, in a kind way, told her that that wasn't a good way to speak, that she should really say, yeah. oh, my gosh. And, you know, she's a church kid. I'm a pastor. She's, uh, you know, glad to be a Christian. Um, and that was an experience for her that, you know, it, it actually was a growing a growth experience for her and caused her to stop yeah. and think. And then, of course, she comes home and corrects the rest of the family. But um, <laughs> so there's a, you know, from a liberal Protestant perspective, there's, you know, you can lump these things together and think, oh, if in, in a, a context in which saying, oh, my God, is going to have, you know, a, a reaction like that is one, you know, then you draw the dots and make your stereotypes. But your tradition really seems, again, to to belie those things. Can you talk to me a little bit about the contradictions it holds and the, um, where it's at today, where it came from? Yeah. Um, I would say until the middle 60s or so, Calvin College um, was still really recognizably Christian Reformed. When I graduated in 1967, probably 94, Five percent of Calvin College students were Christian Reformed, and then gradually the college started catching on among um, American evangelicals, and so today it's probably about forty percent Christian Reformed students. All the rest are um, various forms of evangelicals, plus um, a number of more mainline Protestants. We've had a few Catholics and a few Orthodox, but they're rare. Uh, the, the, the denomination was a very doctrinal, very orthodox doctrinal until the 60s, and then you started to see no longer any sermons on election and reprobation. That just got silenced. And a lot more interest in ecumenical interest and um, a lot more social justice interest, a big component of Calvin College faculty and students were active in the civil rights uh, movement of the 1960s and were uh, staunch opponents of the Vietnam War in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, the, the college uh, became uh, generous evangelical instead of um, orthodox reformed, and uh, it, it will be there even if the Christian Reformed Church should die. Calvin College and Calvin Seminary will persist. They're extremely vigorous institutions with a very lively uh, intellectual um, heritage and uh, persistence. Um, and there are other parts of the de denomination that are important. Um, adoption agencies, um, mental health facilities, um, uh, outreach, social justice outreach agencies, um, diaconal offerings all over the world. So there's a, there's a good deal of life uh, in some of the most important agencies of the denomination, even as the number of members um, stays flat or very slightly declines. These days, that's a uh, rousing success. Um, yeah. Is there yeah. concern at all, either at the college or within the churches in, in the denomination, that what sounds to me like a, a pivot, a shift in perspective, uh, an openness 
toward the main line or toward that sort of way of thinking and being church. Is there a concern at all that you'll lose your the particularity, the pungency of your uh, either Reformed or, or Christian identity? Um, there's been a big debate in the denomination over what our identity consists in now. It used to be that it was in adherence to uh, creeds and confessions, and um, that it was at one time uh, Dutch ethnicity. Uh, though both of those things are largely faded. Um, in the already in the 1980s, I would have seminary students who were very impatient with um, systematic theology with adherence to creeds and confessions with anything that sounded at all um, intellectual to them. They started, we started getting a lot more students who were kind of pietistic. And so, yeah, um, it's a little hard to know what the identity of the Christian Reformed Church now consists in. Uh, it's, um, it's just not very clear. Yeah, I, I think one can say that about virtually every you know non-sectarian denomination in in America right now. I mean I assume that the Amish and, and to some degree Mennonites still know who they are. We sure don't know who we are in the UCC and I mean that's probably a, a chronic condition for my denomination but uh it's interesting to hear that that it's very hard I think to and and maybe unwise even to resist the cultural forces that that reshape us. Um, yeah. as the church the I'm, I don't know if you've taken a look at um, the latest and I can't remember the title book of Marilyn Robinson essays in which she talks about one of the essays that she talks about is she makes this this observation that Calvin John Calvin's love of the word of God um, it, it's overly simplistic just to trace that to Luther and trace that to scripture but was rather a sort of part of a broader appreciation for writing, for words, for literature that was sweeping Europe at that point. One of the things that I, I look at Calvin College at a distance and see is that continues, that there is this deep, deep love of literature, of language uh, coming out of the school, coming out of your own work also, which I'd love to talk about. But is that, um, is that a fair assessment? I mean, do you think that, I'm curious what you think of Robinson's claim, but also about the way in which Calvinist theology might continue to generate a love of literature and language. Yeah, um, there was a book already in the late 50s uh, by um, Andre Bieler, B-I-E-L-E-R, called The Social Humanism of John Calvin. So there, there's uh, been an appreciation of Calvin's broader main learning besides his... Um, uh, reformational zeal for a long time. And around uh, Calvin College, uh, a good deal of the life of the mind uh, stems from reading people like Abraham Kuyper, uh, Dutch reformer, um, prime minister, uh, theologian of the 19th century, who was um, eminent for saying that every square inch of creation belongs to Jesus Christ and that there is no distinction between sacred and secular and included within it 
his own appreciation of John Calvin's um, humanistic tendencies, his insistence, for example, that astronomy is absolutely as important to a Christian as theology. Um, so there's a, there are deep roots in Calvin of uh, love of the life of the mind. Uh, at one time around the Civil War, uh, half the private colleges in the United States were either founded or led by Calvinists. And of course, uh, Puritans established Harvard University within about six years of landing. So um, their interest in higher education was uh, profound and lasting, and it's been like that forever. Calvin College is simply sort of a Dutch ethnic uh, reiteration of this Calvinist interest in the life of the mind. I think, though, you may do the uniqueness of, of where you're coming from. You may, um, I don't know, underestimate that a little bit. I, I was raised as a Congregationalist, and, um, you know, out of, right, I mean, we, we Pilgrim Congregational Church, we certainly thought of ourselves as a part of that lineage, and yet, um, I don't think I heard the name John Calvin until a religion class my sophomore year of college, that we had let ourselves, you know, that, that notion that you just shared, that that the Lordship of Christ is exhibited, right, in everything that is. Um, we t- I think sometimes the, the liberal end of the, of the Reformed Church took that to mean something quite different, took that to mean that all things are equal at some level. And I guess what I see in, in your own writing, I heard in the sermon that I heard you preach and some others that I've listened to and read online, um, uh, an ability, a willingness to hold on to the gospel as criterion through which to look at the other pieces, other, other ways that, that God is present and speaking. Is that, does that, is that clear? I think that a lot of us uh, who have been around Calvin College and Calvin Seminary um, for decades really do try to do that. Um, we try to make the good news central and to try to find a way of preaching gospel no matter what the text is. And um, that's just been kind of a common discipline, I think, among many of our ministers and theologians. Uh, which I simply participate in. Your book, um, Reading for Preaching, again, I'll take this out. I just read it since I saw you and um, enjoyed it very, very much. The Just as much as anything, the uh, just the pieces that you pull out, the pieces of literature, the discrete examples that you lift up were, were wonderful and just fun to, fun to read and wonderful. Um, but, so I'll start over, but, your book, Reading for Preaching, what, what, as a teacher and as a listener to sermons and a writer of them, what prompted you, what need was this book meeting for you, for your students, for the church? Why'd you write it? For 13 years, I have hosted or co-hosted seminars for ministers on Reading for Preaching. Um, my colleague and friend, John Whitley, and my other colleague and friend, Susan Felch, uh, back in 2002, suggested that I start doing this in, in the summer. Um, and it has been a revelation. We get uh, somewhere around 18 preachers together for a week or two weeks, 
and all we do is read um, stories, uh, biographies. Um, one day we devote to children's literature, have uh, Gary Schmidt come in, expert writer. Uh, one day we devote to poetry, and Susan Felch comes in. And we do some journalism as well. And we ask ourselves at every step, why would a preacher want to read this? How is this going to help a preacher? And over the years, we sort of concluded that the main reason a preacher wants to read widely is to become wiser. If you spend a lot of time talking with wise people, you can become wiser. But if they're not available 24-7, you can have them on your shelf and pull down a wise person and read. And we figured that the need for wisdom was urgent, given that the preacher has uh, a unique and very high hill to climb every week. The preacher has to stand in front of a significantly mixed audience, mixed in every, every way you can think of, and talk to that audience about the mightiest topics human beings have ever considered and engage them on those mighty topics. Nobody else has an assignment just like that. And you, you really have to be kind of crazy to even attempt it. But uh, there it is. Um, maybe you've seen the risen Christ in some way. Maybe you just felt this profound calling to attempt it. But your job is n- not to attempt it while you're still foolish, uh, or at least not to attempt it when you are as foolish as you've ever been. You want to become a little wiser right along so that you don't say uh, crazy things. And the, the reader uh, has exposure to people who have uh, been at the intersection of sin and grace, who've thought deeply about what's wrong in human life and what ameliorates it. Um, so the preacher is constantly trying to become wiser. That is, if the preacher is faithful. But then there are many other benefits, too. You can sometimes pull a good sermon illustration out of something you've read. You can tune your ear for language, which is your main tool. Um, You can bridge the circumstantial distance gap between you and people of other cultures and other times. After all, if you're a Christian, you believe that you are among uh, brothers and sisters of every tribe and nation and language. So you want to be widely acquainted with the whole world and the whole church. And um, adroit writers can take you places you would never have dreamt of going. Well said. One of the things that you, one of the claims you make in the book that really struck home for me is the way in which, and you've just said it again, that reading literature in particular, journalism and poetry do it too, of course, but you enter into these other worlds. Your um, your geography, like literally your geography is expanded. And I, I tie that to the work of the local church pastor, and that's most preachers, of course, are not, you know, jetting around from, from one big pulpit to the next, but instead are working slow and steady in a local community. I love that. I fully believe that that is the way in which God uh, moves in the church is locally. But you can become, at least I can become, quite parochial. Uh, Even here in the city of Chicago, um, where I've been a minister for most of, of my adult life, it's a cosmopolitan place. 
But I can spend literally months without leaving my neighborhood, without leaving my eight blocks where most of my parishioners live and where my church is. And then you get yeah. a, a very limited range of perspectives. I don't have the, the money or the time to, you know, to do a lot of travel, et cetera, et cetera. I talk to the people in my congregation primarily, and, and while it's a diverse group, they all they have a lot in common. So when I stop and read, um, read a novel, read even a novel of, you know, written from a perspective that I really disagree with, um, it takes me someplace that, that the circumstances of my work won't allow for. And God is in that place. Yeah, it was a very uh, interesting uh, observation of Calvin and then of a whole lot of uh, thinkers who followed him, certainly of Abraham Kuyper, that God has a lot to teach us through the writings of unbelievers. We, we can find out uh, how the faith looks to them. Uh, we can find out where the weak places are in our presentation of the faith. Uh, we can appreciate anew how scandalous and um, initially Im- improbable the faith may seem. So, yeah, it's, it's really important to read uh, plenty of unbelievers and to mull over what um, we may be able to learn from them. And um, I guess uh, some of our maturity as believers and as ministers depends on the seriousness with which we have engaged the cultured despisers of the faith. Yeah, and the, and not just the, the sort of inarticulate, lazy cultured despisers of the faith, right? But, yeah. but people who have a, a keen eye and a sensitivity to the human condition and still don't believe. The, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the writer um, David Gates, do you know his, his No, stuff? I don't think so. No. Um, I just, while I was up in Michigan, I just read, uh, it's probably four or five years old at this point, but a book of short stories that he wrote. He's an, he's an interesting person, he, uh, or an interesting writer, um, one, of my, one of my personal favorite contemporary writers. He writes novels and short stories. And I don't think he's a religious person at all, but he brings religious concern, Christian concern, into his writing. His latest book is called um, The Wonders of the Invisible World. And, and so quoting Calvin, of course, but... Every single short story, it's bleak, but every story in this book um, is like an illustration of sin in a way that I feel like theologians can talk about abstractly, and oftentimes Christians are almost afraid to say, because preachers are afraid to, to talk about sin, I guess, what am I trying to say, as courageously, as plainly um, as some writers, right? As some writers who probably don't even believe in grace, um, or not in the yeah, way they do. If you, um, I'll speak only for the kinds of churches that I know, but I have been in, pl- I preach someplace almost every Sunday, and I have been in plenty of congregations in which the, um, the liturgy, including the songs, are relentlessly upbeat. And it just strikes me that um, this is hopelessly out of touch with how life goes, and that there's a reason why half the psalms are psalms of lament. Life is is not doing um, well in many places and in many settings. People are not doing well. And to have all of this simply absent from Christian worship strikes me as um, very superficial. 
and writers, uh, if you read short stories or if you even just watch TV, you'll find instances of human evil um, every minute. So Christian worship that is absent discussion of sin, confession of sin, absent lament, just is uh, hopelessly out of touch with how human life uh, actually goes these days. I, I couldn't agree more, and I think that not only our end of suffering and the suffering we cause through our sinfulness, but also the um, that that tendency toward I don't know an insistent, kind of almost shrill insistence on on joy in worship it can it ignores the cross too, ignores the suffering of God. Um, are there? Um, are there particular poems or particular poets that you think are are helpful to, to preaching? Well, in our in our reading for preaching seminars, we uh, typically on Poetry Day we look at poems by Robert mm-hmm. Frost and by Jane Kenyon. Both of them have the virtue of being understandable. There are plenty of poets um, that you struggle with because. Uh, they're, what they're trying to say seems opaque. And nobody has time for that these busy days, certainly not a preacher. So uh, our conviction in the seminar is that you read poets you can understand, and if you don't like a poet, you drop that poet and you go look for another one. And um, virtually every preacher that we've had in the seminars has loved the poetry of Robert Frost and of Jane Kenyon, it's not only understandable, it's uh, often extremely vivid and can give you an image that will stick. Um, there's a poem, for example, by Jane Kenyon called In the Nursing Home, in which she tells of a horse that can no longer do the um, whole tour of the uh, corral um, can't do the big loops, but now um, every night somebody comes secretly and and takes the the gates in, so that the horse now has to do very small loops, and those gates of the corral keep coming in further, and finally the horse can't do any loops at all, but just um, hangs its head. That poem is called "In the Nursing Home," and any pastor will understand exactly yeah before we shift off poems i'm going to beg your indulgence and uh, i'd like to actually read you one of my favorite uh poems that fits i think a lot of what you were describing you probably know it um and i've found this to be an invaluable one uh in the pulpit it's called shiftless by raymond carver Um, oh yeah the people who were better than us were comfortable they lived in painted houses with flush toilets drove cars whose year and make were recognizable The ones worse off were sorry and didn't work. Their strange cars sat on blocks in dusty yards. The years go by, and everything and everyone gets replaced. But this much is still true. I never liked work. My goal was always to be shiftless. I saw the merit in that. I liked the idea of sitting in a chair in front of your house for hours, doing nothing but wearing a hat and drinking cola. What's wrong with that? drawing on a cigarette from time to time, spitting, making things out of wood with a knife. What's the harm there? Now and then, calling the dogs to hunt rabbits, 
Try it sometime, once in a while, hailing a fat blonde kid like me and saying, don't I know you? Not, what are you going to be when you grow up? <laughs> yeah. There's such... Cars, cars on blocks in dusty yards. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yeah. And there's... I've found over the years I've, I've, I've liked this poem for a long, long time. And, and uh, again, my sort of sense of it has changed. And it's such a proclamation of grace. Um, and, and I found myself thinking it's, it's God who's, who's drinking the cola in the hat, whittling, looking at us and saying, don't I know you? Not yes. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a beauty. I love that one. Um, so, in, again, in one of your books, you talk about your own pastor, and you talk about um, something that you heard from the pulpit. I assume that you, you know, as, a, as an academic, as a, as a person at a seminary, in addition to preaching, you're hearing a fair amount of preaching. And um, I found myself this summer when I, when I headed down to the church where I didn't know you were preaching, and then there you were. Um, as I, I'll make a confession here. I'm not the world's greatest vacation churchgoer. And um, <laughs> it was kind of a, and, 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 and that's great, actually. Stir yourself up, stir, stir others up to good works. So, uh, two of the people on the staff here at St. Paul's, uh, our music director and one of our associate pastors, uh, whenever they come back from vacation, they talk about the experience they've had of, of worshiping elsewhere. And having listened to them do this for two or three years, I started to feel like, not guilty, but inspired, you know? Well, I ought to do that, too. So anyhow, there I go down to the church and, and kind of examining my motives, but also feeling quite reluctant, to be honest. And I feel like as a listener to sermons, I bring this um, two things to it. Uh, probably way too, well, I don't know if it's way too much, but a very heightened expectation that I'm going to encounter the presence of God uh, in what I'm about to hear. And then at the exact same time, I also don't bring really any hope for anything happening at all because I think I've been bored and disappointed by a lot of sermons. Like every, just, I mean, certainly I've bored and disappointed a lot of people as a preacher, but um, as a, like, how does preparing yourself to listen to a sermon, how is that different from reading a novel, from reading a poem, from any other way in which we're being addressed? Well, I think um, a Christian uh, tries to honor the fact that God very often uses the preached word to speak to us. We have had it happen in the past. Um, we expect it. Uh, we want to honor the, um, the tradition of the church in asking us to expect it. So there, there's a pattern of expectation uh, with uh, sermons that maybe is not there so explicitly with uh, short stories and novels. But um, God's word is promiscuous, so it can happen almost any place. Mm, that's great. Um, so that, do you think that the what happens in the interchange of a sermon is, are, are we simply, I don't know, opening ourselves to a reality that's taking place elsewhere, but we're paying more attention? We're... Well, the, the acoustics are all um, favorable. You've uh, been inspired by, by singing, uh, and not just your own singing, but the, the singing of um, brothers and sisters around you. 
you have, um, if this, the liturgy is anything like traditional, you've confessed your sins, you've been assured of pardon, you've had an opportunity to bring your uh, gifts, you have uh, seen and greeted um, fellow believers whose faith is something of an inspiration to you or could be. So the acoustics are all favorable when the preached word um, is heard uh, for the Holy Spirit to to be at work and to start to blow through the space. And uh, you, by your expectation, put up a sail. And it may be that um, the Holy Spirit is going to take you someplace. It's not just like that when you sit down to read. Um, it's a different experience. The acoustics are different. Sometimes the Holy Spirit does blow when you read and you see more deeply into the life of God or into um, the intersection of sin and grace. Uh, but it hasn't been designed to catch the breath of the Spirit. The experience hasn't been designed to catch the breath of the, of the Spirit as explicitly as um, public worship. I think that's uh, so well said. Your point about singing, this is obvious, but when we sing, we become vulnerable. Um, and, that's exactly and, the right word. Yeah. I mean, somebody said to me once, you can't, uh, there's two things you can't do and fight at the same time. You can't sing and fight, and you can't eat and fight. That in both of those things, you're sort of you're you're, you're there's a weakness to both of them, right? An openness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I like that vulnerability idea where singing is concerned. Um, for many years, um, my wife Kathleen and I had a preacher who used to be my student, whom we both respect enormously. And he taught me that one good way to begin a day uh, is to take out a hymn book, go to some part of the house where you won't disturb anybody's sleep, and uh, sing. Mm. He said, um, you find out so early how poor your voice is and how poor your ability to sing in tune and to sing in time. And all those vulnerabilities are openings for the grace of God to get in and to shore you up, um, even though all your vulnerabilities are perfectly on display. And he is right. It is a gorgeous thing to do and um, deeply strengthening. So, yeah, vulnerability is the right word to talk about in singing. And when you sing in church... There's a chance that somebody just in front of you is going to hear you, and uh, they're going to be, um, if they're in uh, good form, they're going to be a little amused by your vulnerabilities and delighted that you came. Isn't that true? The um, it's interesting to look out in the congregation or to sit in the congregation and you know look to your left and to your right and to see um, who's singing and who isn't. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if there's, I mean, that would be an interesting study to study singing congregations and congregations that don't sing and, uh, you know, or sing reluctantly um, and then do some comparison. I've found over the years that I give a lot of, of, of leeway when doing funerals and weddings in terms of probably too much leeway, you know, allowing the couple or the grieving family to um, to craft things. And um, there's a 
there's a correlation between people who are regular churchgoers who want to sing and people who aren't, who don't, that runs deeper than simply we don't, we're not familiar with these songs, right? There's a, yeah, um, yeah. yeah it's, and as there, there's a, uh, it's a wonderful privilege if you are a worship leader or a preacher to be able to face the congregation when they are singing because you can not only hear them and that will be inspiring, but you can see their faces. And there will be people whose lives you know have been hard, who are singing their hearts out and have a look on their face that is uh, beaming grace to you. Hmm. You can't get that if you're not facing a congregation. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. The, um, the church I serve right now, in a way, I really have loved this. There, there was at some point, I don't know when, probably in the 60s, 70s, uh, um, a desire to get the clergy kind of down off the, um, out of their thrones and, and uh, down with the people. And, and we now um, sit kind of in the front pew, basically, when we're not leading a discrete portion of the service. And in some ways, I like that because it really cuts against that tendency towards self-aggrandizement that, that clergy people have. Um, but I've, there's things I've missed. I just realized I haven't watched a congregation sing forever uh, because I'm in the very front. I don't see anybody. I see the altar. Uh, and, and in fact, at that church in Omina, that's what I was reflecting on when I was thinking about who sings, who doesn't. Because, you know, it's so funny. Teenage boys won't sing in church in my experience, right? And who, who that's, a, that's the group that does not want to admit their own vulnerability, that's for sure, or can't. Exactly. I mean, for the, some of them might be, you know, right on the cusp of having their voice change. So singing is humiliating to them. Yeah. Um, let me let me switch topics just to conclude. And and um, one of your books that has been particularly meaningful to me over the years is Beyond Doubt, oh. um, mm-hmm. which I've just loved, and it's uh, it's been impactful to my own faith. One of the devotions that you write in that book is about uh, miracles. And and you make this observation, I'll read this bit. Miracles are closely connected with God's other acts. The Bible seldom makes sharp distinction between God's providence and God's special providence. In fact, as Gregory the Great, C.S. Lewis, and others have pointed out, many of Jesus' miracles are small, fast examples of the big, slow acts that God performs all the time. Every harvest, God feeds the multitude with many loaves multiplied from a few grains. Every summer, God turns water into wine. Jesus does the same thing fast and on a small scale. Such a beautiful idea and um, such a way of of bringing the miraculous sort of into the scope of our understanding at some level. Um, And also, and you don't say this, but I I, I couldn't help but think too that that's true in sort of salvation history is doing the same thing, right? I mean, there's a movement, I believe, toward uh, that you see. I mean, you see the gospel working its way, of course, in the Hebrew Bible, but, but it becomes fast <laughs> yeah. with Jesus. It gets concentrated. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, you know, for the most part, at least in my end of things, you know, rationally minded progressive Christians really want to uh, forswear the possibility of miracle, um, at least happening now in, in, in that supernatural kind of way. Um, but one of the things that your reflection opened me up to was the idea that, and I'm just wondering if you agree with this or disagree with it, 
there's this sense that perhaps these things are happening on a continuum. Um, and what we see as miracle is sort of one end of the continuum. But that just as like I can walk through the same orchard, uh, cherry orchard, you know, 50 times. One of those 50 times, I'm going to really be struck by something. It's the yeah. same terrain all the time, but things become crystallized. Things become more beautiful than usual. Things start to feel uh, like they're at the at this liminal space, at the boundary between you know a world that's bereft of God and a world that is saturated with God. Um, yeah. Do, so, do you think that like sort of miracles are happening? Uh, you, do you know what I mean? Like like everything else, they're spectral. There's a point like you know it's not miraculous, but it's sort of bending toward it. Yeah. Um... I think it's entirely possible to be um, way too credulous uh, where miracle reports are concerned, um, to be naive and credulous. Uh, C.S. Lewis says in his book on miracles that uh, stories about miracles are, uh, as, are as often false as stories about anything else. But it is also possible to be um, too incredulous, to be not open to think that um, God cannot be at work today in surprising ways. And to me, the most convincing um, exhibits of God's uh, supernatural grace at work in the world is in cases where um, hard hearts change. For example, the conversion of a guy like Chuck Colson was a God Almighty Holy Ghost miracle. He was as hard-bitten a son of a bitch in the Nixon White House as anybody at all. And his biographer, um, his most important biographer, whose name is now escaping me, um, paints a very bleak picture of who Chuck Colson was. But then he read Mere Christianity, and he sat uh, in the driver's seat of his car after having had uh, an important conversation with a mature believer, and he felt as if his heart was melting, and he began to weep. Um... There's a document from the 17th century Reformation called the Canons of Dort, which says at one point that the regeneration of a hard heart is a miracle no less impressive than creation or the resurrection of the dead. And I think that's so, and I think that some of the conversion stories that are available for Christians to read are as convincing an example of miraculous grace as anything else we can encounter. Mm. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, and you get one of the wonderful things about being a pastor is, is you have occasionally, um, again, sort of on a continuum, to see that happen, right? The, um, one of the things for me that has been the most, I don't know, powerful in terms of my own maturation as a person of faith is listening to watching people be surprised by uh, the love of God in their life. Folks who 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working in a very secular context in a highly um, suspicious tradition and a uh, very self-critical tradition. And nevertheless, you know, once every two or three years, somebody will come into my office stunned by um, the arrival of, of Jesus in their life. And uh, yeah. I've seen that happen enough times to realize that this does indeed happen. Uh, it can happen to me. <laughs> it does happen. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's entirely right. Neil, this has been a wonderful conversation. I, I um, uh, talk about uh, the grace of God just to, um, to, to, as I said, to be able to meet you this summer and to hear you preach um, was, a, was a great gift. And uh, this has been an edifying conversation for me and a fun one, too. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Christian Century's Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Elizabeth Palmer.